loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that could come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming back Erica Buist. Erica is a writer, journalist, and lecturer based in London, England. She writes features for outlets such as The Guardian, BBC, and Newsweek, and also teaches journalism with Guardian Masterclasses, Goldsmiths University, and Oxbridge Academic Programs. She's the author of the book, This Party's Dead, in which she travels to seven death festivals all over the world and also writes plays as part of Stockroom Theatre Company's Writer's Room. She can be found on Twitter at at, at Erica Buist and Instagram, Instagram at This Party's Dead. Welcome, Erica. Hi, Cheryl. Thanks so much for having me back. Oh, absolutely. And we both looked up and figured out it was in 2016 when you were first here. And um, this book was was a gleam in your eye at that point. Yeah, I really think it was just an idea. We were trying to remember if I'd, I feel like I'd gone to maybe one of the festivals at that point. But um, yeah, I really didn't know what it was going to be yet. And now it's a book. Yes. And, you know, I I am not sure whether I was so clear what your book would be, but I would say they're not just they're not just funeral rituals. They're actually death rituals in the sense of um, they involve dead bodies. Yeah, I was really strict about that when I was choosing them because funeral rituals, I could have I could have carried on forever, you know. So I wanted it to be seven and it had to be festivals and they had to be celebrating the dead or maybe even death itself. And yeah, two of them did involve corpses in the celebrations. And um, we should start, of course, for those listeners who haven't heard the original interview with what would inspire you to do what most people in our respective countries, the U.S. and and England, would consider insane. Uh, <laughs> I, of course, would not. But can you share with people um, what pulled you to this project and this book? Yeah, um, I mean, unsurprisingly, it, it was it was a traumatic event, as you might expect. Um, but my um, my father-in-law um, died and he did it suddenly and unexpectedly, uh, which was um, which we thought was a bit rude of him, actually. And um, <laughs> he, we didn't find him for eight days. Um, so we were, you know, messaging and just quietly getting it was it was normal for him to ignore texts and calls. Um, and uh, yeah, eventually we found him after eight days, which is obviously very it was it was quite a traumatic, horrific thing. Um, and I essentially my my partner did quite well with his grief, I thought. And I I did not. 
I kind of descended into what I would call pajama clad agoraphobia. So I was sort of sitting at home. I'm laughing and you may laugh as well. It's fine. It was ridiculous. I no, no, home. no. I've been <laughs> agoraphobic when I was young, so I don't laugh. Well, I mean, I, I mean it can be funny later. Now some parts yeah. of it are funny, but it wasn't funny at the time at I all. I mean, the funny bit was that I was stalking everyone I knew online to check that they were still alive. And I genuinely thought I was a genius for having noticed that anyone I'm not looking at might be dead. Um, you know, and that was obviously a response to, you know, having been blindsided. Um, so that's the thing I find funny is that I was sat there saying like, oh, well, I guess it's my job to check it on everybody then, you know. And why <laughs> isn't everyone else doing it, right? Exactly. <laughs> I, they haven't noticed. You know what? I'll do it. I, oh, you know, <laughs> it was so definitely like a, a, a layer of arrogance with it. And um, then there was this one like fateful day where I realized there's a word for someone who doesn't want to go outside. And I admitted like, oh no. So I literally Googled how to get over agoraphobia. I was really hoping it would just tell me to like watch Netflix and have some orange juice or something. Um, but apparently you just have to go outside. And I never got over <laughs> how rude that was. Like telling what, a, what a terrible thing to suggest to somebody with agoraphobia. Right, right. <laughs> I mean... Like, as if, clue, as if, like, don't worry know, about it, just go outside. Because exactly. I, I know that most agoraphobic people, this was true of me, I'm imagining it was true of, of you, had to go outside now and then, and that doesn't take care of the problem. This is the thing. I, it's, it's not really a fear of going outside. It's just that when you go outside, you have a panic attack. And so you decide to not do it. You know, you essentially go, well, I won't I won't go to that street and I won't go to this part of the town. OK, I won't go by the window. You know, it's really the bargaining with it that makes it, you mm. know. Agoraphobia. Um, so I, I decided <laughs> after I saw that you just have to go outside, you know, like when you've got a broken ankle, just go for a run. I was once I got over how rude, <laughs> I decided to um, all I wanted to do was buy a sandwich. And so I, I spent quite a long time psyching myself up and um, I was sort of just about holding it together, going to get the sandwich. And then I was in the supermarket. To this day, I'm so sorry to the lady who approached me because she was just a nice lady. I think she was like trying to offer me a discount on cookies or something. Mm. And I just freaked out and I was just like, no. And I threw the sandwich and ran home. Mm. And it was like when I was there and looking at my cat judging me um, that I thought like, I might, I might have let this grief thing get on top of me. And um, the reason my mind went to death festivals is that I used to live in Mexico. I lived there for two years and um, obviously everyone's heard of day of the dead. And I, and I remember thinking the words, when faced with death and mortality, they throw a party and I just threw a sandwich. So I thought like, I've definitely diverged from whatever, whatever Mexico could have taught me. I've obviously failed to bring it home. Um, and just out of interest, because I'm, you know, as a journalist, um, I just looked up death festivals around the world and I found out there are loads of them. Yes. Um, and it, yeah, we might be the odd ones out here. And so I spent quite a while, like just compiling a list of seven of them to visit. And the reason it was seven is because that's how many days um, my father-in-law lay there undiscovered. So I thought one for every day we didn't find him. And um, that is the point where the book gets a lot cheerier 
and I stopped throwing sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, what I was aware of reading, uh, and, and I'm going to ask you to share uh, a, a piece from the book that comes from this period, uh, I was so acutely aware that everyone thought the best thing, including you, was for you not to go in the room. Mm, and yeah. your your fiancé at the time actually did go in the room. Yeah. And he ended up less traumatized. Now, we can't conclude anything from that. You're different people, different mm. relations, you know, all kinds of things are different. But I did wonder if you thought maybe the idea of his dead body it was possibly more traumatic than actually encountering it or experiencing it. I mean, I brought that up with him and he said, uh, no, it, it was, it was, it was horrifying. However, there's definitely a difference in our experiences afterwards in that I spent literally years double taking, thinking I'd seen him on the street and he didn't. Mm -hmm. Um, he saw him and there's no doubt in your mind, you know, so that's, that's, that's interesting because of course I have children. When my wife died, we have a, had a 36 hour, um, wake basically. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we slept in the room with her body and all that. Mm-hmm. One of the children was two and a half and I was prepared for the questions when she coming back, you know, all those yeah. questions that everything on child's grief says will happen. Not one of those things happened. That does not surprise me. Yeah. Wow. Um, Yeah, because there's no way of... It's just real. (laughs) Yeah. Your brain does not speak English, so there's no way of communicating it to it without (laughs) something, even if that is, you know, the Irish wake where you have to shake everyone's hand as they come in and every hand you shake, it's another confirmation. They're dead. They're dead. And yeah, I had none of that. And um, mm. my partner did not, he, he said he thought it was a chivalry thing. You know, the, the lady must not see the corpse. <laughs> yes, that's natural, I would, I would say, in most, yeah. um, you know, pre-death educated um, families. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, you know, at the, at the risk of some people um, being, being, um, surprised mm-hmm. about us sharing this on the air. I'd really love for you to read the part of the book about what happened after you discovered Chris's uh, Chris in his uh, house. Sure. I didn't catch the trauma clean man's name. I should have. He was there to confront chemical compounds like putrescine and cadaverine to act as a rubber glove buffer between us and our mortal terror to do a job we couldn't do while we stayed downstairs, gingerly passing dripping packs of green tinged chicken to the bin like children. He and Dion seemed far away and distorted as they discussed the job, as if I was watching through the wrong end of a telescope. I sat at the kitchen table watching the trauma clean man's papery hands gesticulate as he went over the particulars of how he he would clean up the fluids left by the body of my father-in-law never to be. The trauma clean man was dusty, what you call rugged, about 50 years old, but with grooves in his face so deep you could file tax forms in them. He had worn out sandpapered vocal cords and a voice like shoveling gravel tobacco-stained teeth flashing under pale, dry lips, which cracked as he chatted about clearing blood, dirty needles, and rotting bodily excretions from otherwise lovely homes. I watched him thinking, you were a 
baby once. It's when he said fluids for the sixth or eighth or thousandth time that everything went dark. The kitchen table pressed against my forehead, comforting and sticky. Nothing in Chris's house was ever quite clean. The night Chris died, Dion and I were arguing about flossing. He said he tried it once and it made his gums bleed. I told him that means he needs to floss, damn it. Then I asked if Chris had replied to his email. Is she all right? asked the trauma clean man. The day after Chris died, Rick invited me to that PR event for the launch of Hotel Chocolat's Christmas line of chocolate. Chris was probably stiff with rigor mortis by the time we left with our freebies and went to see that weird grunge band in Soho. The lead singer was dressed as a giant rag doll and screamed, sang, why don't you miss me over and over again? I'm fine, I chirruped, infusing my voice with sunshine and exclamation points, but not lifting my head from the table. Just resting my eyes tears dripped onto my shoes. On the third day, I'd posted a picture of my coffee. On the fourth day, a picture of Dion smiling with a tankard of beer. And I asked if Chris had replied to his email. Let me know if you'd like a tea or anything. Had I really just offered tea while pretending to be cheerful? I'd never been more English. On the fifth day, I took my cat to the vet and then asked Dion if Chris had replied to his email. No, thanks, love. You're all right, said the trauma clean man. I'll go and get started. At the weekend, I'd met an old friend in Camden and she'd cried with worry over a rash on her back. It turned out to be nothing. Chris was already bloated and green when I sent her a text saying, you worry too much. I heard the trauma clean man turn and walk to the stairs, coughing like he had a badger in his chest. Are you okay? Said Dion. The day before Dion found Chris, I was at the vet for a follow-up appointment for my cat. He was fine. The loss of his testes hadn't bothered him at all. I asked Dion if his dad usually took so long to respond to emails. Eight days. Eight days. How could it have been eight days? Dion laid a hand gently on the back of my neck. That guy, I said, still faux chipper, as I clasped Dion's fingers in mine, was a baby once. That sense of time all mixed up really, really struck me, you know. That's (laughs) trauma, isn't it? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Time's all mixed up. Um, Of course, with our weird sense of humor, the funniest part was (laughs) the the cleanup crew getting locked in his room (laughs) with him, (laughs) which was right near that in the book. Uh, I could just picture that so vividly. It was so funny and it was awful because I think it was the undertakers because they, I'll tell you what was so funny about it is when the police came down to ask us about it, like if they could smash down the door, it took us a while to understand what they were talking about because we were in shock. So when they finally said, no, they're trapped, we need your permission to break down the door, my partner just sort of waited and then he went, Oh, that's really funny. And we laughed so loud. And this is a Victorian house. You can hear everything. So they just could hear us laughing at them. It's awful. I felt really bad, but it's really funny. (laughs) And also that is not, I know that people in the U.S., maybe in in your country too, um, really clamped down on things like laughter in grief. But laughter is the same as crying in the sense that it's a release. Yeah. And, and many people have the urge to laugh. Uh, you know, I've, I've known about people in, in funerals who suddenly get the giggles and they can't stop and they feel guilty, but it's, it's actually very normal. We've just like kind of frozen it out of us. So it well, wasn't you know, hard for me to imagine that at all. 
Absolutely. And you know what? If they don't want you laughing, they need to take the taboo away because when it's taboo, it means that there's tension. And the easiest laugh in the world is just to break some tension. And so, you know, they can, if they want to make death less taboo, we'll stop laughing. That's, that's the deal I'm striking. <laughs> I will go along with that. I love it. <laughs> um, so here you are. Uh, you know, I have a different, I think, view of this whole experience uh, from when I talked to you very close to when it happened, not too far from when it happened. But I'm mm. what struck what strikes me right now is you're living with your fiance. By the way, I think it's important to say you had actually lived with his father for two years before that. Yes. Uh, you had a very close, intimate relationship with him. And that brings up for me, um, you know, don't don't tell people they don't have the right to grieve. Uh, yeah. I mean, there are all kinds of grief that that are not for a legal relative being from the community I'm from, of course, <laughs> you yes. know, until recently, nobody was your actual relative who, right. who cared about your death. But um, it feels to me like you had this pressure, you know, I shouldn't be grieving so hard. He wasn't my father. He wasn't even my legal in-law, you know, but yeah. here's, here's your future husband uh, in grief over his father. And, and then your response to his death is, you know, a period of looking back, uh, mental health crisis, right? Yeah, <laughs> it I must mean, be, yeah. <laughs> it must have been so hard for you to support each other with those two dramatic things happening all at once about the same event and and different different effects for the two of you. It was, yes, I mean, it was, I think he just sort of lost himself in work. And I, I mean, for one thing, I didn't feel I had a right to grieve. No one told me that directly, but, you know, we live in the same society. We know what I was responding to. Um, but I think on top of that, it seemed like a great excuse not to do the work, you know, because it is work um, moving through grief. And I, I you know, that, that feeling of not being entitled coupled with, well, this is a great way of not having to face something painful. Um, I thought this will work brilliantly. And it did. No, it didn't. It didn't work, it didn't work at all. <laughs> yes, I've noticed that those kind of strategies don't work forever at any rate. <laughs> you know what? Any day now I'm going to crack it. <laughs> <laughs> but you managed because you did, in fact stay together you you've since gotten married as i understand it you know um you managed to support each other well enough apparently yeah i mean it you know once you realize what it is and uh, once he begged me to please go to therapy eventually i did <laughs> i left out a lot of things from the book but you know yeah you sort of the most important thing to me go to a therapist <laughs> yeah i don't know why i was so reluctant but yeah, that and sort of doing the book i mean i do want to stress that i didn't i didn't write this book to heal a lot of people have summed it up that way i did this is not eat pray love with corpses i'm telling everybody i swear i didn't do it to heal um although i i, I did accidentally but um it was really more just i was fascinated with how investigation how yeah. yes how's everyone well, else dealing with this it's time for our first break but i think that's a really crucial thing of course i've met many people who have written books about their grief to heal 
I've met more who did it after they healed to share their healing. Mm. And then I've met others who did it just because they became quite interested and fascinated with what they learned along the way, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. There are all those things, and we'll we'll uh, we'll come back to that after the break, listeners. You can go to my website, uh, weatheringgrief.com, or the Good Grief Host page to find Erica Buist. Go to Erica Buist on Twitter or This Party's Dead on Instagram. Back after the break. Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Resiliency is the human capacity to lean into individual and collective strengths with compassion and grit when faced with the challenges of lived experience. Join host Elaine miller Karras for Resiliency Within, a program of hope and healing designed to inspire you to integrate wellness into your life, your family, and your community. In challenging times, you'll want to tune in every week. Resiliency Within can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on The Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Erica Buist about her book, This Party's Dead. I love the title, by the way. So so obviously a huge uh, leap from unable to go out of your house, basically, to Mm -hmm. going to death festivals around the world. And it made me wonder, you know, were you kind of an evil Knievel type previous to this experience? That's that's sort <laughs> of going for the thing you're afraid of, isn't it? I think so. I probably was. I mean, I, I was, you know, 
do you ever look back at your 20s and think, why wasn't I afraid of anything? <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. Like, oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> I'm 69. I've thought of that for longer. <laughs> right. Like, or I, I should have died. Like, if I could, it's like, what would you say to your 20-year-old self? I was like, I'd say that you are mortal. Don't be ridiculous. Stop. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, Seabolt, do not jump off that horse. Um, but, you know, it was, so yes, a little bit. I was definitely, like, big into, you know, traveling and stuff. And what sort of person runs away to live in Mexico for two years for no reason, you know? So um, I suppose so a little bit. And even recently in the pandemic, I, you know, all my work went away and I realized the agoraphobia thing slightly sneaking back. I noticed I was frightened to go in a shop. So I went and got a job in a shop. Um, um, and So that is a part of you that, that didn't just get invented by the experience, but certainly got accented by it. Yes, definitely. I mean, it, it, it worked before because I'm not the big death phobe that I used to be anymore. So I guess I have to admit that it did, you know, it did work in that way. So, um, yeah, which which led me to go and work in a shop in the middle of a pandemic and everything was fine. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing that stood out about the festivals is that being relatively comfortable as everybody in these various ways of honoring death as opposed to uh, honoring the person who died. There, there was a quality of honoring death itself, right? And the person, of course, being a part of that. But um, just the fact of being more peaceful with, for instance, dead bodies did not mean don't grieve. And I think that's the other you know, the a misunderstanding, if you're at peace with death, then why would you grieve? But it doesn't seem like anybody had that idea. Not at all. That that did not even come up, to be honest, because, you know, that's that's a confusion of two things. And I think that happens when you when your policy is to ignore something completely until you absolutely can't ignore it. And when can't you ignore it? It's when someone's dying or you yourself are dying. So you wait until your highest moment of trauma to address this thing. If you don't do that, it's much easier to see that when someone dies, essentially two big things are happening. One is that you are feeling grief and loss of the person who you're not going to see again. You know, that hurts. But you're also dealing with a death reminder. You're dealing with mortality itself. Mm. And essentially, you can choose to deal with that well or badly. And I think here we deal with it badly. Um, and in these other places, in various different ways, I think they're dealing with it well. But literally, just by giving yourself a period of time every year or every few years, whatever, where, you know, you are considering mortality, you are giving yourself time and space to deal with that idea. We do not give ourselves that time and space. And therefore we deal with it a little bit like children, almost like mm -hmm. the very idea of mixing those two things up. That is like, that is like a child's misunderstanding of something, you know, where you equate two things and someone has to come along and show you that they're different. So, you know, I did get a couple of, with some of the questions that I asked, occasionally I did get a little, oh, oh, honey, no. <laughs> Which, you know, there, there, fine. a little pat on the head, huh? <laughs> yeah, like, or like, why would, what do you, you've never seen a dead body. Why haven't you seen a dead body? That's so weird, you know? <laughs> it's, it's embarrassing. I don't know what to say. Because 
don't know. <laughs> yes, yeah, like- so I was te- I was telling you before we went on about the Burkina Faso people that you know I I know somebody who was trained by them and they said why would a such an intelligent people give up their grief like that you know yeah. why would they do that it, kind of failure to understand <laughs> why do we do it this way. People. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I'd like to speak for the intelligent people, please. I am stumped, actually. I, why do we, you know, I know why we do that. It's fear, you know, and it's also this idea that if you, you know, if you ignore something and ostracize it from your culture, you are safe from it. But that's a very short term strategy um, and and does not work, as we have seen over and over again. I think it might be, this is a little more on the philosophical end, I suppose, but um at least in the U.S., and we come from you in our cultural attitudes to some extent, mm-hmm. um, everything is supposed to be fixable. Yes. So yes. wouldn't we then have to ignore anything that, that can't be changed, like death? <laughs> right. And I know you talk about that some in the book when you go and, and talk with the guy who thinks he can, it, thinks it's possible to cure death. Yeah. Uh, what what a nightmare that leads to in my mind, but we won't go there. <laughs> Let's give people yeah. a taste of one of the one of the festivals that you went to um with Eric. Would you share that? I would. Yeah, that's fine. This is um this is in uh, Madagascar and I'll give you a tiny bit of context just before. Um so this is a place where they will exhume the bodies from the tombs, wrap them in a new shroud and uh and have a dance. Um, and just this will be made a little clear in the excerpt, but also this is a place where when you die, you become the intermediary between the living and God. So the very big difference between our cultures is that in the in Madagascar, when you die, your power increases instead of decreases. Um, okay, so here's, here's uh, a snippet from Madagascar. Would you like to stand on the tomb? A bizarre question to be asked in almost any context, but here the one-story tomb is already populated with several drunk dancing men who seem only too happy to make space for me. The crowd of thousands is dotted with rolled up straw mats, babies on hips, arms waving to the music, and the air is made of shouts. They shout over the music, shout over the shouting. As the minutes wear on and people get more excited to see their dead emerge, the space gets tighter. Below us, the dirt is being shoveled aside in search of the slab to open the tomb. The view from up here is astonishing. There are easily two or three thousand people here. It's strange to think that many of them will end up in this very tomb, will be exhumed for Famadihana in years to come. And when no one remembers who they are, they'll get pushed to the back of the tomb to make more space. And finally, as we say, rest in peace. Eric, I say, gripping the dusty pink cross on top of the tomb. Did you say this is all one family? Yes, Eric nods, taking my backpack and slotting it onto his front so I don't drop it on the corpses that are about to emerge. Lala has 15 siblings, and that's normal. So if they all grow up and get married, and they each have 15 children, he indicates the crowd. It's simple math. Do they all know each other? No, he waves his hand. That's one of the most important reasons to have Famadihana, so they can meet each other. The men toss aside their shovels, having uncovered the slab. They slide it back and dive into the tomb. A very drunk young man sways before the gaping dark hole, his eyes closed, his arms raised to the heavens. People step forward and pass their straw mats past him, the same mats we were just sitting on in the cottage. 
It's a sign of respect, not putting dead people straight on the floor. The men disappear into the tombs, place the ancestors on the mats, yell out their names and pass them up to their descendants. The names are still visible on the earth-stained shrouds, scrawled on the side in Sharpie. The descendants hoist them upon their shoulders and walk to the back of the crowd. That's Lala's grandfather, Eric says, as the fifth body emerges from the tomb. Let's go. We climb down the rickety wooden ladder and jog through the crowd with follow that car energy. It takes us a few minutes to find the right corpse, which is not a sentence I ever expected to write. A young man rips strips off a new shroud and mutters, his eyes wet with tears. He's saying, I haven't got a dad anymore, Eric whispers. I'm an orphan. I remember Edmund's comment that the overwhelming emotion of exhuming the bodies is sadness, an intense renewal of the loss. Rather than treating bereavement like a flesh wound that heals linearly and with time, Thomadihana rips it all open again, if only for a moment. Grief is the small print of love. They wrap him in a silk sheet, tie it with the fabric strips. The music swells and all around us, people start to hoist the bodies onto their shoulders. The brass band is louder and li livelier than ever, and the people grin with delight as they bounce their dead up and down to the music. I feel a knock at the back of my head. It's a freshly wrapped corpse on the shoulders of three men who laugh and say, sorry. Of course, I think, laughing helplessly. Of course I got hit in the head by a corpse. I briefly wonder if I was kicked or headbutted, but I don't ask. White lady, white lady, take our picture, cries one of the grinning men, steadying ancestor on his shoulder. Do you have un stilo? Eric asks. I pull a pen from my bag and Lala's relative proceeds to write the deceased name in large black letters on the white silk shroud so they'll be able to recognize him in seven years. The next body over needs one too, so they pass it along. When I get it back, I joke, this is a special pen now. It is, Eric grins. You will receive a blessing. A blessing? Just was lending someone my pen. That was easy. The sun is tumbling towards the hills. It's unwise to tackle potholes in the dark. So we say our goodbyes. The family members clasp my hand with both of theirs, thank me for coming, make me promise again to share those pictures and tell everyone what I saw. We hurry through the crowd, ducking under newly shrouded cadavers, bouncing joyfully on the shoulders of their rumlet descendants. I shut the car door and gaze into the rearview mirror, barely able to process what I've just seen. Eric starts the engine. The wheels puff clouds of dust into the air behind us, obscuring the family of thousands, dancing with their dead under a setting sun. So, you know, just like a normal trip, really. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, what's what's normal, that word, <laughs> what's normal yeah. is what's normal is what's expected where you are, isn't it? That's exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think they got a real kick out of out of having a visitor there who they knew, you know, would find this so different, you know, but I think that, I mean, they got a real kick out of the fact that I think it was because someone was there covering it, not in the context of the play because that is the coverage that they tend to get for Famarihana. It's that, oh, they're, they're spreading the plague. Oh, the plague has come back because of this thing. It's always, you know, they're called zombies. They're called, you know, they, 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 uh, they do yeah. awful things about them as, you know, making it sound morbid, as if there's anything morbid about any of it. Mm. You know, I mean, in, in Tarnasharaja, you actually see the dead faces and this one, they're still wrapped in a shroud. What on earth is morbid about this? It's, it's, they completely forget that this is based in love. This is based in love and a little sort of fear and reverence because you have to keep the ancestors sweet. If you, 
if you don't have this party and you act like you've forgotten them, you know, rest in peace, they think is horrific. They're like, that's basically saying you've forgotten about them. And they have more power than you. They can make your crops fail. They can make you sick. You know, you, you've got to keep them sweet. And that is such a big difference to how we think of our dead here, where, you know, you basically don't matter anymore when you die here. I mean, that's the bluntest way I can put it. But, you know, you're, you're it's everyone's horror. Gone. And then as soon yeah. as it happens, you're supposed to forget the person. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So I don't know how I'm supposed to be there when there's dancing and people drunk and I'm getting hit in the head by a corpse. I don't know how I'm supposed to be anything but delighted, frankly. It was absolutely delightful. Oh, that's so that's such music to my ears, Erica. (laughs) Seriously, (laughs) you know, to have that to that have that experience. Uh, I was curious about something that's that's, you know, (laughs) A minor question, I guess, but um, I know from having been very close to people in in native culture and and other cultures, there can be a lot of suspicion for for very good reasons of people wanting to visit cultures, mm. um, and especially the deeper traditions, right? <laughs> um, sure. But. It seems as if you were able to convince people, I I have to think this is in there, that Mm. your sincere interest was not voyeuristic, was not, you know, that that it was sincere, um, that maybe you told them your story. I don't know, but it does seem as if you were particularly well welcomed. I was. I mean, one of the reasons, remember those stories that I I mentioned, they are not being written by people who visited. They're written by people who've seen a blog about it and decided to write it as if it was morbid because they they know that will get more clicks. Um, But I was so welcomed. I mean, for one thing, you know, when I went to Nepal or or Mexico, whatever, these things are happening in public. You just turn up. Um, But this was a family. Um, And so what I did, it was a couple of years in advance. I I started making inquiries, basically. Um, I had... I found a blog of someone who visited. I said, how did you get to do this? And, you know, he gave me a contact of a a travel company. And, you know, I was talking to that woman. We were emailing back and forth for a good six months. Um, And she said, I will ask around and see if anyone invites you. And in the end, she said, "Um, my own nanny has invited you. Um, And they were so welcoming. I mean, you know, I did. And I you know, I, 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 I bought a shroud for them. I bought some rum, you know, I wanted to show, I was really super happy to be invited, but everyone I met, they all shook my hands and they said exactly the same thing. They all said, take pictures of anything you want and please tell everyone what you saw. No matter where we went, the same thing kept being fed back to me. Um, so I think it was, there was a lot of pride in the fact that anyone was interested in their festival and um, in, it was in like, the reality of it. So to me, that indicates they believed yeah. you would tell the real story, not the sensationalized story or the, yeah. the story through the Western lens, but that you would actually really tell it. Yes. Yes. That was, that was clearly well communicated. And of course the whole time I was there, you know, I was my amazing guide, Eric. I mean, who's so incredible. We spoke a mixture of English, French, and Italian the entire time. It was mad. Um, but he he just stood there, like 
translating their answers and these people were having like long philosophical discussions in 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 you know in in response to my questions they answered so fully and so you know deeply i was i was very moved by it but um if they had any suspicions they didn't seem to have them by the time i got there so perhaps it was that i'd been talking for a long time with someone that that they trusted mm-hmm. but they they certainly yeah yeah, yeah and like, in a way um because i know that can um turn on a on a dime right it's someone yeah. trusting you to to hold their culture basically um yeah. and so the 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 reason you were doing it maybe it helped a little that you were you know a, a mainstream journalist in your other I, in your I other life so. i don't know maybe it helped that i wasn't a missionary i don't know I'm, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm british we don't have a great reputation you know i tell I mean, they, <laughs> when they saw me they're probably like well she doesn't have a flag thank goodness you know <laughs> it's, it's, i was quite surprised because it was the british missionaries who turned up and sort of created all the tension that there is now so yeah they were very welcoming despite that <laughs> that's fantastic um because i do think you know, when you're in a particular culture, until something jars you out of it, you just accept the way it is. It's hard to see the air you breathe, um, yes. you know. Yes. So getting this look into a completely different way of doing it is is really helpful, I think. And maybe for them, they probably don't um, explain to an outsider every day uh, what it's all about. They had to think about it probably, it's just something yeah. they, they do, right? So Absolutely. let's go to an, let's go to another break and come back and talk about it some more. Uh, listeners, you can go to weatheringgrief.com, the Good Grief host page. Please reach out to me. Let me know what you've enjoyed, what you'd like to hear about on the show. And to find Erica Buist, you can go to Erica Buist. That's E-R-I-C-A-B-U-I-S-T on Twitter or This Party's Dead on Instagram. Back after the break. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. 
Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins looks at how natural healing and biological dentistry can safely and effectively treat most health problems. You'll hear about the innovations in both traditional and alternative medicine therapies with doctors and dentists, along with discussions with chiropractors, medical experts, homeopaths, naturopaths, and energetic healers. It's great to have all the best information in one place. And Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins brings it all together. Listen Thursdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health and Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I've been talking with Erica Buist about her book, This Party's Dead. And Erica, I'm, I'm curious, you know, there were, were definite differences between the seven festivals that you attended, mm-hmm. but I wondered what you learned that maybe uh, cultures that aren't quite as, I want to use the word phobic uh, mm-hmm. about death, do, were there things you felt were in common in the festivals as well? Or were you more struck by the differences? There were, there were, I mean, there were a lot of differences, but there were some really striking common threads. And one of them is that every single one of them puts an emphasis on there being a continued relationship with the dead. Um, and that's something that, you know, I grew up thinking wasn't possible um, because, I mean, even if you're religious, which I'm not, you know, religious people, we say rest in peace. And so as much as you might pray to them, you don't, you know, you might talk to them, but you don't expect them to talk back. That's a haunting or, um, you know, you you need to see a doctor. Um, Whereas in these, it didn't, I realized quite quickly that it didn't actually matter whether you believed that they could hear you or anything, although a lot of people did. It was about essentially giving yourself something to do. So this one took me a while, but I realized that when someone dies, you, you're, the love you have for them doesn't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. And, you know, have you heard that phrase that people say that grief is love with nowhere to go? I have and many times. It's so sweet. It's so wistful. It's so stupid. Why do we just not give it somewhere to go? You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, Some things. of us do, I'm just saying. Exactly. It's this thing that's said as if there's, what can you do? And it's like, well, uh, if you want to read my book, there's a lot you can do. And, you know, Mm -hmm. so even something like, you know, in, in Mexico where you have, you know, you have a picnic with them, you pour their favorite drink in, in Sicily, you do a little treasure hunt in the morning with your kids and you say it's from the dead relatives. It's all of these little ways 
that you are essentially making space for them, making emotional space for them, and you're doing something for them. Even if it is buying them present, you know, pouring their favorite drink or even just talking about them like, oh, my dead grandmother got me a doll. You know, these are ways. It's essentially a conduit for the love that you are inconveniently saddled with just because someone's not here anymore. Um, you know, it's it gives it gives you something to do somewhere for your love to go. And that was what was common in all of the death festivals. And in Madagascar and Tana Taraja, the last one where corpses are um, actually invited to the party, it was very obvious in those because they literally invited them, literally gave them gifts, literally involved them in the party. Um, but that was a common th thread throughout all of the festivals. It's interesting. There's a book, a book called uh, Past and Present, P-A-S-S-E-D, and Present. Oh, right. uh, mm -hmm. And it's all different ways to keep your relationship to the person alive. And, you know, uh, People ask me my belief system sometimes, and I usually say it doesn't really matter to me. Mm. Um, if I'm talking to my, my dead relatives and I feel them with me, it doesn't really much matter to me whether they are somewhere or whether I just feel them with me. There you it's, go. No. <laughs> you know, it, uh, either you know, way... Me? Either way, their body died, but no, that didn't change in me, right? <laughs> that sense of Cheryl, connectedness. you know how long I spent researching and writing this book and you just came up with that on your own. It's so unfair. But yes, <laughs> you worked out that essentially this is about you and not it, about... Grief you know, is it, about, yes, because what died was her body. Yeah, her, my connection to her didn't die. Exactly, and you you're talking about yeah. rituals that reinforce that. Yes, um, you know, my daughter, my oldest daughter, who was the oldest, when, of course, when uh, my wife died, um, mm. she like every year on Thanksgiving um, we have a tradition of apple pie in my family. She mm -hmm. makes the apple pie, which inside of her she'd be remembering her grandmother. But she talks to her children about my mother. Right, right. She showed me how to make this, you know, she has cultivated a relationship. And, and the older two were little when she died. They don't remember mm -hmm. her, right? The youngest wasn't born yet. But that can be cultivated. Um, yes. So I am all for it because otherwise we're, we're losing the threads, Right of Absolutely. important relationships. So yeah. I don't care what people believe. You can do that no, despite beliefs or lack of, I think. Yeah. Seems obvious now. I went all over <laughs> the world to work that out. Oh, my goodness. I'm so tired, I tell you. <laughs> yeah, well, because we, we get caught up with where, where do you think they are? And valid question for some people, but... Um, also I'm willing to let it business. be mysterious. <laughs> yeah, none of your business. Let's talk about you. <laughs> Let's just share one one more part of the book um, from uh, from you know the person. I love this line: her living granddaughter and her husband, who has been dead for seven years, and they're all together. <laughs> let's 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 hear that part of the book. Sure. 
If you'd like some tips on how to prepare to meet a woman who's been dead for four years, leaning against the wall between her living granddaughter and her husband who's been dead for seven years, I've got nothing for you, except perhaps the reassurance that it takes mere minutes for the situation to seem surprisingly normal. The grandma is wearing diamond earrings, a brand new bright blue shirt, a red necklace, sandals, and a handbag hanging casually from her right forearm. Her hands are folded on her front, her right fingers resting on her left. The veins on her hands are still raised, the wrinkles on her knuckles visible with dust, her nails still neat and trim. She still has her hair, eyebrows, and eyelashes though her skin is dark, dry, almost sandy. Her husband is more deteriorated, his skin peeling, yellowing with a few holes, but his features are still recognizable and he also sports new clothes. The trio lean against the blue and pink wall of a tomb as family members and tourists snap photos. Another girl joins the photo shoot with a framed picture of the man when he was alive and the granddaughter holds one of her grandmother. The granddaughter's phone rings. It's a FaceTime call. She takes it and holds the phone up to the grandmother's face. The family member who couldn't make it squeals in delight at seeing her again, waving hello. We pass around chocolate biscuits, particularly at at the children present. And my guide, Anto, tells me they talk to their ancestors. Two young men lift up the grandmother and grandfather and walk them past their own open coffins to the edge of the hill so everyone could take pictures of them against the lush mountain backdrop. Anto is keen for me to know that as they moved her, they said, excuse me, grandma, we will put you over there now, just like we did last year. When we make them stand like this, we always ask their permission. If you don't talk to them, you can't move them. It's basic respect. That makes sense, I say. If I was paralyzed and couldn't move, I'd expect you to ask me before you move me. I'm half joking, but Anto says, yeah, exactly. You treat them just like you did in their lifetime. Death is not the end in Tarajan culture. At first, the boys crouch behind the body while people take pictures. Even now, when I look at the photos, at first glance, they look like a couple posing on holiday. Then they stand and put their arms around them and pose for more pictures. Afterwards, they carry them over to where the granddaughter is sitting by an open tomb, her legs dangling from the ledge. They stand her grandparents next to her. I hit record on a video and capture a moment that changes me. The granddaughter turns her head, looks at her grandmother and seems to spot something. Lovingly, almost absentmindedly, she brushes some dust off her grandmother's hair, two strokes of her hand, and then she goes back to looking at the view in companionable silence. Five years ago, I sat at my kitchen table, grief-stricken and anxious, and read about a festival for the dead, a remote place in Indonesia where they exhume corpses, dress them up, and walk them around. I read pieces that called them zombies, called it morbid, creepy, disturbing. And I arrived thinking I'd pass the idea that a corpse is frightening, that engaging with the reality of death and mortality is morbid or even brave. And yet at no point did it occur to me how visible the love would be. It was kind of amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just made the connection in my mind that the kind of disrespect that... Uh, aging or old people have Mm -hmm. has to do with our basic disrespect for the process of death. Absolutely. You know, I I, I mean, it's not an entirely new thought, but it took, it it took it deeper for me that that kind of um, veneration and respect that she showed probably also shows itself in how old people are treated very much. We, we are basically, people die a physical death and a social death. 
Um, and we are killing our loved ones socially before their bodies give out because we're afraid, because we don't know what to say, because we want to remember them how they were. All of those lies we tell ourselves. We are essentially killing them socially, whereas here in Tarnasharaja, they live for years after their death. Socially, they're part of the community. It was gorgeous. We're going to have to end for today. I've so loved this conversation. Thanks for being with me. Oh, me too. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Eric Blist can be found at Erica Blist on Twitter and This Party's Dead on Instagram. Next week, I'll have Sherry Walling to talk about her book and circus show, Touching Two, Two Worlds, both created for healing from the suicide of her brother. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.